I think if people are practicing allyship to get a gold star, that you're just upholding um, systems of power and oppression and continuing to harm people who have been harmed historically and are continuing to be harmed now. And so it can't be about like the gold star or the reward or being seen or fame. Allyship can't be about that. It needs to be about um, folks really noticing and seeing what's going on and feeling committed to changing what's happening in this culture because we're dying because of the culture. Citizen Podcast. Welcome to Citizen Podcast. This is Carrie Kelly. This recording is from a live event featuring Michelle Cassandra Johnson on Juneteenth. 2019. Michelle has been a regular on Citizen Podcast. She has been an anti-racist trainer for over 20 years. She is the author of the must-read book, Skill in Action, and she's my co-conspirator in the work of race and resilience. This conversation isn't just about Juneteenth and the history of racism in America. It's not just about how white supremacy is at work on our bodies and minds. It's not just about reparations and strategies for liberation. It's about relationship and humanity and how to do this work across lines of difference. Michelle says that we don't need more people dying, more statistics, more harm being done to black and brown people to know that white supremacy is happening, to wake up and acknowledge that something is terribly wrong. We just need to do something about it before it's too late, before more people have to die. She invites us to remember to remember who we are beyond whiteness, beyond fear, beyond separation, so that we may find our way back to ourselves and to one another. This podcast is the medicine of truth and the hope for liberation. Check it out. Okay, y'all, welcome to Citizen Live, a podcast that's having courageous conversations at the intersection of well-being and justice. We are here today with the amazing Michelle Cassandra Johnson, social worker, yoga teacher, longtime race equity trainer, and now author of the book, Skill in Action, Radicalizing Your Yoga Practice to Create a Just World, which if you don't have it, Amazon Prime that right now. Because it's a must have, and we actually, no, we're selling them. (laughs) So don't do that. Um, But we have copies for you to take home with you. It's an essential book. I think for anyone that practices yoga, um, that teaches yoga, most definitely, um, that's a part of the yoga community or yoga culture, um, so that we can actually live our truth for real, for real, and confront um, the systems, the culture, white supremacy, patriarchy, capitalism that we are often replicating in wellness spaces. This book uh, speaks fierce truths (laughs) about how proximal Um, those ideologies are to the places where we practice and um, share and grow and transform together. Um, And Michelle just has really been um, a a fierce, brilliant, skilled um, facilitator of that conversation for a really long time. Um, And most importantly, she's also my friend. 
um, and also my teacher in many ways, and my co-conspirator at Race and Resilience. And so it's like so amazing that she's here. She came all the way up from Winston-Salem, North Carolina, to be a part of this conversation with us. So please help me welcome Michelle Cassandra Johnson. We're going to high five a lot. Thanks, Gary. Uh, so this work of practicing justice and resilience is hard. And it's tricky and it demands a lot of us. So we thought we'd start by getting grounded and centered together so that we can show up as our like whole best selves in this conversation. And so I want to turn it over to Michelle Cassandra to lead us in a meditation. Thank you, Carrie. And thanks to everyone for being in this space. So you can find a comfortable way to be in your body, and maybe that's seated in your chair, or maybe you want to stand up, but find a comfortable way to be. And take a moment to arrive here in this space. Take a moment to turn your attention to your breath. Begin to feel your inhales and exhales. Begin to deepen and lengthen your breath in your body. As you deepen and lengthen your breath, notice how you feel. Notice what is present for you. Notice how you feel physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, psychically. Notice what's present for you. And now bring your awareness back to your breath and our collective cycles of breath. And take a moment to let your body breathe. Take a moment to let your body breathe.
We begin with the breath because the breath is life-giving, it's generative. In a culture where breath is taken away from many because of the identities they embody. So I always say it's a radical act to breathe in community, to notice the shape change in your body and the collective body as you breathe in and breathe out. And as you land in this space, just know that part of our work is to make space for everyone to breathe and to be. And take five deep breaths. And as you're ready, continue to breathe. If your eyes are closed, you can open them and reorient to this space and prepare for our time together and this conversation about race and resilience. Thank you Thank for you. that. I forget how much we need it until I do it and then I'm like, oh, thank mm -hmm. all the goddesses for that. Um, so today is Juneteenth, a day that many people don't know about because um, like so many truths about black culture, it has been erased and edited out of our history books. Um, and I don't know, does anyone, not does anyone know about Juneteenth, but does anyone remember being taught about June 19th, 1865? Because I don't, right. Um, so over 150 years ago today, um, enslaved African Americans were notified of their freedom by Union troops in Galveston Bay, Texas, uh, which actually happened two years after the Emancipation Proclamation. I feel like that was actually misreported today by a lot of people. So this happened two years um, after the then President Lincoln um, um, issued the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, and the day marked the end of, of chattel slavery, but the beginning of a new phase of slavery that lives on to this day. And you talk a lot about history in your work, in your teaching, in your trainings, um, and, and the significance of, of reclaiming it. So I'd love for you to share with us, like, why, why is it important to not just reclaim this day, but to really, like, retell the history of America as a part of liberation work? I um, believe if we don't understand our history, um, then we'll just replicate patterns of harm and oppression. 
And in my experience growing up going to school, I didn't learn about Juneteenth. And um, I only learned a little bit about black history. And mainly it was about slavery, right? And not other things connected to blackness or black culture or people of color. And there's a lot of whitewashing of history on purpose. And that's one of the ways that white supremacy perpetuates itself. That's right. And it's one of the ways that divide and conquer happens. And if we don't understand our history, then we continue to be delusional about what's going on. Um, and we continue to buy into this illusion that there's a level playing field when actually the country was constructed on a field that was not actually level. Um, Ever. And it wasn't constructed on fairness. Uh, and it was only constructed to support people that were seen as superior. And so we racialize it, I racialize it. And so whiteness was seen as superior. And so I think we have to understand history as painful as it can be for white folks and people of color to excavate and dig deep to understand history, that we have to understand it to be able to figure out strategies to move forward and to create repair and reparations and reconciliation. And I even think like we make a mistake sometimes when we give into the narrative that like we have to go back to, um, to, to the beginning, right? When it was like pure and clean, when in fact like it never was, right? And so actually not just reclaiming, but almost correcting history as we've come to know it um, feels essential to, to understanding how we got here. Right, there's so many wounds connected to history that we are walking around with and that are in our bodies, right, in our spirits. And part of the way that culture operates, dominant culture, is to tell us to deny our history and to lie about it and to forget and pretend. And all that does is, I think, further the polarization and the divide and conquer and the harm. And so we have to be with the discomfort that can arise when we start to talk about history. And one of those lies is that um, slavery no longer exists, right? right? Um, and yet we know that the legacy of slavery and anti-black racism is still very much at work in this country. And that segregation and subjugation has been a, a quality of American culture for as long as America has been America. And we see that in the, the fact that African Americans are incarcerated at five times the rate of white folks, um, that black women die at childbirth at four times the rate um, as white women, and that the typical black family has one-tenth one the wealth of the typical white family, right? So like the evidence exists, right? That there are deep inequities and injustices out in the world and, and, and in America. And yet sometimes I think even when we use those statistics and throw them around, it's easy to talk about things happening over there, like out in the meta world. But these things are playing out right here in our most intimate spaces, our yoga studios, our wellness spaces, our living rooms, our workplaces. Um, can you talk about how even these things, white supremacy, um, um, capitalism, patriarchy, I don't, I don't want you to talk about all the things, I'm gonna give you like a load right here, like let's name all <laughs> the ideologies that are, that are creating a toxic culture mm -hmm. and wellness, but, but, but they are, they do exist, they are playing, they're in the room, they're alive in the room, they're alive in wellness and yoga culture. And so what are the ways in which you see these things playing out? Because I think for a lot of us, especially those of us like myself who's, who has proximity to dominant culture, right? Because I'm white, able-bodied, um, you know, um, like I've been taught that these things are invisible, that they don't exist, right? Um, and so like what do we need to see 
that is in fact true about how our spaces are toxic. Right, so the toxicity you're talking about is connected to an assumption that I bring into every space, which is that we live in a toxic culture. And part of our conditioning is that we don't see the toxicity and we don't actually see what culture is made of. And so part of our work is to open our eyes and to be able to see. And um, I don't actually believe we need any more statistics. Like, I think we know yeah. the truth, but culture keeps saying don't actually name the truth. Right? Don't tell the truth, because we're implicated when we tell the truth. Like every one of us, I'm implicated in the white supremacist cult culture because I can collude with white supremacy and go along to get along and I can harm a lot of people of color right? as I do my work in the world. And so part of my work is to understand that at all times, right? to have an analysis about how racism and white supremacy operates and how I'm being positioned. And so I think our work is to remember to remember, that's what I always say, because we don't need any more people to die, we don't need any more statistics, we don't need more people to be harmed. Enough people have, have died, right, at the hands of white supremacy, or are dying at the hands of white supremacy. And so I think our work is to, even in this room, understand how dynamics are playing out related to our identities that we embodied. So the identities that are marginalized by culture, that are pushed out, that are left out, that are exploited by dominant culture, and the identities that allow us not to actually see what is happening, our privileged identities. Like, that's our, our work. And so a, a um, practice that I engage in is to notice who's in the room and who's not in the room. And I can make a lot of assumptions about who's in the room and who's not in the room, but it's important for me to understand how culture operates and to always be looking at like who's left out and in what ways. So what things are in place in the room that might actually be leaving people out or might make the space not seem accessible to someone um, physically or emotionally or mentally or spiritually. And so our work is to begin to notice what's missing, who's missing, and how we can respond to that to actually create liberatory spaces. And what are some of like the other questions we can be asking and or like noticing so that we can become more clear seeing? Like I'm thinking about in particular, like who owns the studio, right? Mm -hmm. Who are the decision makers in the studio? Like stuff like, like what are other things that we can be curious about as we interrogate how liberatory are these spaces really? Right, so who has access to decision makers and who has access to resources? And in what way are, um, I'm gonna generalize, we gatekeepers, right? So I don't know everyone in the room, um, but what I always say about gatekeepers is that if you, if you have any control over other people's lives, if you're making decisions, decisions that affect other people's lives, then you're a gatekeeper. So part of our work is to understand how we're using that gate and that role. Um, because we're connected to, to wellness culture, right, and to, to the larger culture. And so who owns the studio, as you mentioned, or who owns the space, or who controls, um, who teaches in this space, and, and what they teach, and how they teach. Um, how does the marketing look, and who's represented in the marketing? Those are some questions that I think about with wellness spaces. And I think one of the things that you talk about that I, I love and I've learned so much from is having an analysis of culture that helps us to understand that culture is the air we breathe and that it's not something that we can escape. And especially in wellness culture where I think sometimes we have an illusion that when we hit the yoga mat or when we get on the cushion or when we do the retreat that we're extracting ourselves from culture and we're in some neutral space. When, as I, be, as I like became to know culture, 
as the water we're swimming in that's like invisible to us and that we are a part of, like there's no escape. Like there's no way in which we, um, we can separate ourselves from the culture. We all obviously are, are situated in it in different ways based on our social location. But I say that because, um, because I, you know, I've seen, like I don't think we can meditate away racism. <laughs> And when we try to, that's spiritual bypassing. Right. And, and what is spiritual bypassing, just so that folks understand sort of like what that refers to? Yeah, so the, the terminology actually came from John Wellwood, who's a psychiatrist, and um, he was talking about his clients, his, his patients, and talking about how they use their spiritual practice to avoid wounds. And so they couldn't heal because they were escaping the wounds, right, and moving away from them and engaging in spiritual practice and becoming addicted to spiritual practice. And when I first heard that about him and that definition, I thought about dominant culture and how we've, like, avoided history and avoided the wounds and we aren't able to harm unless we acknowledge them. And so that's how I think about spiritual bypassing. And it shows up in, in a lot of different ways. One way that Carrie and I talk about with race and resilience is we're all one and we believe that's a universal truth and yet that's not how we get to move in the world because of what culture says about who we are based on the identities we embody visible and invisible. Another is, um, uh, I've heard like spirit or won't give you more than you can handle, which is um, I think a really dangerous, harmful thing to say to someone, especially when we don't actually understand what is going on for them. Mm -hmm. Um, you're enough, I actually feel like, is, a, is a, a spiritual bypass because I believe I am enough and I also have work to do and I can't like stop with just I'm enough and internalizing that. So there are many ways that spiritual bypassing shows up. And I feel like when we start to get into these conversations, we, we, we start to like hit up against all of these contradictions yes. and, and paradoxes of like, we are one, but we're not one in the experience that we're having on the human level in the relative world, right? Um, and that we are enough, but we are not enough, right? Like, that we have work to do. Mm -hmm. um, and, and for me, that's where the practice comes in, because these are really messy conversations that just are never binary. They're never right or wrong or black or white. Um, and yet we try to wedge them into, right, categories so that we can comprehend them better and so that we don't have to um, wade through the muddy water of like co complexity and uncertainty and and so that we don't have to f to feel the implication right especially those of us who are actively fighting fighting injustice and are replicating it simultaneously and I know that you talk about that a lot that anytime we do anti-racist work across lines of difference it's inevitable that we in fact will replicate it and so how do we how do we build a capacity to hold those like two truths simultaneously? Because that feels like that's where the edge is for us and the opportunity, um, especially in like spiritual context and practice. Well, in my experience with spiritual practice and in particular yoga, um, I was taught to hold two different things at one time, right? And to hold the contradictions and the paradoxes. That's what the practice um, 
is about for me, and it may be different for, for other folks in the room, but it truly is about union of contradictions and paradoxes, and how do we actually feel like a whole being and move in the culture with these different things going on. So I, I feel like everything is within the practice for us to respond to the contradictions that arise yes. and the messiness that arises as we try to have a conversation about racism or how power works or how power moves or how we're implicated in this racist white supremacist culture. The way that um, dominant culture has taken yoga and the way that it's been westernized and capitalism and the business like met yoga, right, that has corrupted it. And so I don't know that um, the way that yoga is being practiced in many spaces because of capitalism allows people to build this muscle and the capacity that you're talking about. Because many yoga spaces do not talk about what's going on in this room because of our identities or outside of this room because of how culture was constructed and who's left out and who's pushed down and who's being harmed the most. And so it, I think yoga spaces and spiritual spaces must start to have this conversation and get in the mess to actually work with people to hold these differences that you're talking about, the paradoxes. And then in my experience working with you, those are not, like the mess is real. It's, and it's not just like, this is complicated. It's like uncomfortable. Um, we make lots of mistakes, we trip over each other, we cause harm. Um, and, and I think that there's a way in which we relentlessly avoid that. Um, and spiritual bypass is another way, right? The way in which we, um, we engage in defensiveness or fragility so that we actually don't have to like get messy with one another um, and do the deep work of relationship. Mm -hmm which is real. That's right, that's right. Because white supremacy doesn't center relationship, right? It centers productivity. It doesn't center people. It doesn't center community. It doesn't center story. It doesn't center truth telling. So what you're talking about and what we talk about is creating new ways of being that are counter to dominant culture. And it feels like as we start to contemplate um, the truths of of the ideology of white supremacy and how it's infiltrated and co-opted wellness spaces. And I also hear you, you, you referencing capitalism, right? And, and colonization, mm -hmm. right? Like, and that all of those ideologies are in fact in collusion with one another to create a, um, a culture that objectifies, to create a culture that, um, create, that, that um, reinforces hierarchy, um, to, de to dehumanize, right? Um, to make all things productive or not at all, right? Um, it's going to call us to question everything. And it's going to require that um, some of us, if not all of us, give up something, actually. So let's talk about that for a moment because um, we talk about privilege a lot mm -hmm. and social location and where we are all located based on our identities, our life's experience in proximity to power, in proximity to privilege and access um, or in proximity to oppression, right? And, um, and I hear a lot the invitation for folks to like leverage privilege, which feels like an invitation to like be a conscious gatekeeper, quite frankly, That's in right. some extent. Um, but I don't hear a lot about what it looks like to give something up 
and to redistribute power, like to get out of the way, to step down off the pedestal, to leave the 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 um the authority position or the decision making position of like the teacher or the studio owner. Um, and that feels like a big line in the sand for, for folks. Like they're willing to ally up just enough so as not to actually like give up space or give up position or give up control. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and I notice that a lot with like white folks who are really trying to like lean into ally work, right? And lean into anti-racism work. But the minute we say, um, and you need to give up, um, it like stops the conversation. <laughs> And I even think there are ways in which we manipulate our allyship so as to maintain control. And I think that a lot, I think that for a lot of gatekeepers and, and folks who are like performing their ally work um, and, 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 sh and um, demonstrating um, an awareness, we see this a lot on social media that like people are like real woke on social media, but when you actually like call them to the front line or to the mat, they're nowhere to be seen, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious, like, what are the conversations that we need to have with one another that helps people realize that if, if people with proximity to dominant culture, people with privilege and power, don't start to relinquish that and, and give up power, um, that there's just going to be a lot more suffering for everyone. Like, what does that look like? That, that navigates the defensiveness and the clinging, the hardcore clinging. I think we're seeing that with the patriarchy right now, right, um, in America, especially around abortion and reproductive justice, that like the patriarchy is in fact feeling threatened and so therefore they're like going like all in on, you know, the subjugation and oppression of women's bodies. And I see that, I feel that way sometimes around whiteness. Mm -hmm. That whiteness is holding on really fucking tight. And so what does it look like to be in conversation with one another in a really like honest, vulnerable, urgent, real way so that we can start to navigate that part of the conversation? Well, I think, um, hmm. being awakened is not a, not a trend. And um, since Trump was elected, lots of people, um, I think, woke up for, for a minute, maybe. I'm not sure if people are still awake to what's going on, because I also think we become numb to it culturally, and that that's the cultural pressure for us. And desensitized. Right, because harm just continues to happen over and over. And so I think it goes back to your question about history, and. Um, what I said about acknowledging the truth. And I also think to have a conversation about the truth, uh, folks need to show up in an undefended way, especially people who benefit from my oppression, right? So in your whiteness, you need to show up in an undefended way for us to have a conversation about racism. And I also think that um, I've been awake for a long time because I, I can't escape the culture or racism. It's happening to me every minute of every day, and, and, and it's affecting every part of who I am as I navigate culture. And I think that has to be known and present for us to have an authentic, vulnerable, real conversation. 
particularly if we plan to stay in relationship through this conversation. And it, it requires deep listening. I think it requires courage to have these conversations. It requires persistence, like showing up again and again. I think for um, white folks, it requires white folks talking to other white folks when there's like confusion and not always relying on folks of color to give the answer or explain what's going on because the culture's traumatic. Mm -hmm. And as a person of color, I'm trying to respond to that trauma all of the time and still function, right? Like I'm in a racist white supremacist culture that is like enacting racism on me every minute of every day. And then I'm supposed to show up and we're having this conversation, right? Or I'm supposed to like go to work and be in a meeting with other people right. who are different than me, right? So I feel like it um, also requires time and patience and a willingness to be wrong, particularly if you're the person who is holding the privilege. One of the things I also hear you saying, which is a question I've learned to ask myself relentlessly is how am I benefiting as a white person? And I think that's especially relevant in, in yoga, right? As like a white yoga teacher who um, discovered yoga not because it was a part of my lineage but because I had proximity to it because I was white and able-bodied and I had enough money, you know, and, I, and it just was a part of my culture. It was just like, it was proximal to me. And so I had this incredible thing come into my life that changed my life. Um, that I began to organize around, and yet it is, it is not mine. <laughs> and, and I reckon with that, right? Like, how do I get to benefit from yoga um, that is, in fact, not a part of my, my, my lineage, and how am I participating in cultural appropriation? And I think that even, too, about, like, doing anti-racism work. Like, how do I benefit from anti-racism work? I mean, you and I work together all the time, and I, and I just see that from the standpoint of, like, if you're a white person and you're not fucking reckoning all the time, like if you're not asking that question, asking hard questions in every moment, not just once and then you move on and you're, you've graduated into like ally or accompliship status, but like being in the question always, right? Being in the question in every context, in every relationship, in every room, um, then it doesn't feel like we're doing enough. Yeah, and I think if people are um, practicing allyship, to get a gold star. That's right. That you're just upholding um, systems of power and oppression, right? And continuing to harm people who have been harmed historically and are continuing to be harmed now. And so it can't be about like the gold star or the reward or being seen or fame. Allyship can't be about that. It needs to be about um, folks really noticing and seeing what's going on and feeling committed to changing what's happening in this culture because we're dying because of the culture. That's right. I want to give a special shout out to our community of supporters on Patreon who are making it possible for us to do this work, especially during this pandemic when we are being called to work harder than ever to expose the inequities of our systems and advocate for the policies that take care of everyone. We could not keep going without you. Citizen Podcast was designed for truth seekers, bridge builders, and emerging activists who are yearning to make a difference. We're not afraid to ask hard questions and have radical dialogue about politics and patriarchy, white supremacy and worthiness, and we're serious about showing up for one another and taking action for the well-being of everyone. 
but we can't do it alone. And building this community on Patreon is our way of sustaining this work in relationship and in accountability with you. By joining our community for as little as $2 a month, you help us create content and resources that matter to this moment. And you get lots of good stuff from us, like early access to our episodes, live community meetups, ally toolkits, and exclusive content. Not only does community support keep us going, but it keeps us accountable and real and pushing the envelope of courageous conversations that are independent, transparent, and authentic. Please join us at patreon.com slash citizen well. So let's zoom out for a moment and just stay, I think, on this um, topic of what it looks like to throw down for real, for real, and really be committed to redistributing resources. Um, today, for the first time in more than 10 years, there was a congressional hearing on reparations. And um, at it, Ta-Nehisi Coates testified that in HR 40, which is the bill uh, that, they're, uh, that they're discussing, this body has a chance to reject fair weather patriotism. To say that a nation is both its credits and its debits, that if Thomas Jefferson matters, so does Sally Hemings, which I thought was super powerful. And I love that he even ref referred to it as a debt that we have to pay because the American economy owes, I don't know how many trillions of dollars to the slave trade and to, um, uh, to the profit that has really been built on black and brown bodies' backs. And so what do reparations mean to you and, and what does it look like? So uh, part of me, um, is not sure that repair can happen um, because of the level of harm that's happened. And so I don't know if there's enough money that could pay me or my ancestors or other brown and black folks or people of color to like acknowledge the, the harm. I don't, I don't think there's a number that I could put on that. So I just want people to understand that. It's an infinite like it's, number. Money is not gonna take care of the trauma right. that's been embodied and the ancestral trauma that I walk around with. And reparations, they have to do with resourcing people materially, so money is part of it, if we look at the definition of reparations. Um, reparations also is connected to understanding how bodies have been exploited and all the ways that bodies have been exploited and used and harmed. Um, and resources are not just um, about money, but it has to do with the question that you asked earlier and what you were talking about with power. Sometimes it means moving out of the way so that folks' voices who are not um, traditionally heard can be heard, so that people can be seen who are made invisible. So I think about it, it's deeper than money for me because money's not going to heal the harm. Well, we're also a culture that pays people off. Right. And I, I just don't. I and think you can't clean slate this shit. We can't. And and when people believe they can do that, then I feel like they they feel like they're absolved of any responsibility to like notice how they're continually implicated in this system, or they're absolved of of understanding how um, their power works and how it moves. 
I think it also has to do with policies, right? Like, what does it look like to ensure access to healthcare, like basic human rights? Right, to address systemic racism and institutional racism, yes. And the, and the way that um, discrimination um, has, has been designed on purpose, mm -hmm. right? Using policy, using legislation, um, using institutions, using culture. Right, so you're talking about, um, because I think this can come up with allyship and when we get in a conversation about repair, that it's not just personal. You're talking about systemic or institutional or cultural racism and harm that's happened. And so when we think of institutions, we're, we're thinking about policies and practices and all the ways folks of color have been excluded, exploited, oppressed, and underserved. And when we, when we understand that institutions have been constructed to behave in the ways I just named, we also need to look at then how white folks or folks who have um, proximity to power and are seen as normal have been included and resourced and validated and uplifted. So that's how institutions operate. And then we have to think about how culture, the air we're breathing in, the water we're swimming in, supports institutions in behaving the way that they do. And so reparations, they do have to, um, they are connected to policy change and also shifting culture as well. Well, and I'm also curious about even like the process that we're in as we contemplate and debate and legislate reparations because it is a white-led committee, you know, in a white-led Congress <laughs> as a part of a white-led organization. And I'm just thinking like that does feel like more, more replication and more of the same, that white folks continue to direct, design, control. Um, the ways in which we move towards liberation and repair, which feels wrong, right? Like, it feels like white folks should not be in the, in the seat um, or in the position of designer of any way in which we heal and create the future that is more just and, and healthy for all people. And, and I'm just wondering, like, where... And I, I say this also because, like, I'm so excited that reparations is, like, a 2020 presidential, can like, issue for candidates. Like... Fuck yeah, and um, like, where's the process of truth and reconciliation in that that demands that we center the people who have been most impacted um, as we like grapple and reckon with the harm, like the gravity of harm, mm -hmm. um, the legacy of harm, the, the, um, the generations of harm, the ongoing harm, and hold the right people accountable for that harm, right? And understand all the ways in which we're implicated and then maybe work towards, like, then what, right? Like, I don't even know what the then what is because we haven't done the part where we actually, like, listen and tell the truth and get out of the way and shut up and center the voices and let those be the most important um, people in the room um, that, that are the decision makers and the directors of this process. So I'm just curious, like, you know, if you got to design this, if you got to, if we were like Michelle Cassandra Johnson, <laughs> you get to tell us how this is all going to go down. You know, like, how would you do this so that it isn't just like one more messed up, <laughs> well-intentioned, right, policy that falls short um, of reconciling and healing the, the, the wounds of this country? How would you do it differently? Well, I want to say that um, white people have been in charge of my freedom for a very long time, and I was supposed to be free, and I'm not. Right, exactly. spiritually and in my soul, I'm liberated. But as I navigate, as when I walk out of this building, I'm not going to be free. 
And so I feel like you're absolutely right that white people cannot be in charge of um, defining or creating my liberation because white folks were already supposed to do that. Like that was supposed to happen and it didn't. And, and I feel like I can't decide for everyone in this space or in the culture what liberation looks like. So my process would be to engage lots of folks in a conversation that's um, collaborative and where we dream up what liberation looks like. And it may be different for me than you, than folks sitting in this room. So it's not one thing. Um, it may uh, look like being able to feel joyful for me. And it may look like for someone else being able to have housing, right, or have a job or not have to have a job because they're resourced. So I feel like this process of liberation needs to be, needs to account for the different ways mm -hmm. that we wanna move in the world, given our intersectional identities that we're moving with. Mm -hmm. And I hear you saying it should be self-determined yes. too. Yes, um, And that location matters to that. And I also don't wanna be nitpicky, right? Cause we're talking about reparations and holy crap. It's huge so that this is even a conversation. And, and, I, and that's really important, I think, not just like at a, um, at like a national level, um, or like a, an institutional level, but I think it's important because I think even in a lot of our spaces, we're talking a lot about inclusion and diversity. This sort of gets back to the conversation from before. Um, but we're not really talking about restructuring so that power is in fact redistributed, right? We're not, we're not talking about um, dismantling the systems that are already set up to uphold white power. Um, and, and, and I feel like that's happening a lot in even wellness culture, but it's also happening in nonprofit spaces. It ha it's happening in organizing institutions um, that we're like, we're, we're willing to do like the diversity training, <laughs> right? We're willing to talk about like DNI work and inclusion policy, but we're not willing to dismantle the structure so that in right. fact we can redistribute power and reorganize around a more equitable culture. Mm -hmm. And so like, I'm excited that reparations is on the table because I do think it's a step in the right direction. And I'm holding, I feel like we're back at like contradictions and paradox again, but I'm holding the question of like, how do we do this differently? And Adrienne Marie Brown talks about in her book, and I know they talk about this uh, in the movement for black lives too, that we need to slow down and move at the speed of trust not move at the speed of urgency that got us into this mess, and not certainly not move um, at the speed of capitalism um, and bureaucracy and white supremacy, because that's just gonna give us a lot more of the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're gonna continue to replicate the patterns, right, and the mess that we're in right now. At the root of the word reparation is repair. You already mentioned this. Um, but I, I do really want to talk about this because I think that this is both, I think this is an intention we all have, but maybe we don't have the muscle or the skill around how we do this work. And I think you already named this, but we can't just throw money at the problem, even though that's, I think, a part of how we correct potentially, like structural um, inequity. It's a I think it's a part of it. How we do it is questionable, but I think it's a part of it. But we also have to decolonize our minds and we have to repair relationship. And, and I, I, love, I love how you talk about remember to remember because it's the opposite of dismember, which feels like what the system is constantly doing to all of us. It's pulling us in a million directions. It's making us feel separate from ourselves, separate from our bodies, separate from each other, separate from the fucking planet. Um, and so I'm curious, like, 
as we move towards repair with one another, like what do we need to remember about who we are and who we are to one another? And then what does it look like for real, for real? Like what does it look like when we bump into each other, we trip over each other, we harm each other, we betray each other? So I have two different parts to my, my answer to your question. And one is um, about my mother, because she's actually been very sick for about 10 weeks. And I have had to fight with a system of, um, it's not healthcare. I have to think of a different word for it, because it's, it's not based care. on people being healthy at all, or free, or whole. Um, and she was in her first skilled nursing facility. She's now been in three and three hospitals and luckily she's going home uh, next Friday. But she was in the first one and um, I called to make sure she was getting her medicine. She had an infection in her lumbar spine and was in excruciating pain. And the nurse that I spoke to and with did not seem concerned that the medicine was not in the facility or that my mother needed the medicine. And I understood that the nurse, she's in a system that um, is not based on wellness and wholeness and likely is not being paid very well in this institution and has too many patients to give medication to. So I have like compassion for that. Um, and I said to her, this is my mom. Like she's precious to me. And so I'm just naming that because I feel like we've forgotten how precious we are and how sacred we are. Mm -hmm on a spiritual level and on a soul level. I think we've forgotten that. And I, what I did in that moment, the reason I said it to the nurse was because it was true, but also I wanted her to stop and think about what if this was like your mother or your sister or your child or your beloved or your friend, like pause for a moment to think about how you're reacting because you're treating my mother like she's not a human. And I understand that the system treats you like you're not a human, but you're just replicating that system and causing more harm. So there's, there's that answer to the question because I think we have to, the remembering to remember is to remember the truth of how sacred we are as a collective. And when we forget that we're a collective, we do things that cause harm and create more suffering and more death in the culture and to the planet as well. And you spoke to it when you talked about we're disconnected from ourselves, from each other, we're not in relationship and it's not centered. And that's what white supremacy and the capitalist culture and the patriarchy and the heterosexist culture, right, and the ableist culture, that's what those um, dynamics want us to do, to forget. And so we need to remember how precious we are and how precious this planet is and that we get to be in bodies in this planet like moving and that we have work to do. So we have a responsibility. Like we're, while we're precious, we need to be accountable to each other as well. Um, and so that connects with relationship and I'll, I'll sort of use our relationship as an example that Carrie and I started working together two, maybe two years ago, I think. Maybe three, we met three, three years ago and fell in love right away. Right away. And, right um, away because I saw like how precious she was when I met her and how divine, like what a divine And, and we actually didn't meet in like a, um, like a fluffy, no, like it was like a precarious <sighs> moment that we met in and we still found each, I just want to say that like you can actually find love in the mess. Yeah. Cause it was like, we were in a mess together. We were in a training. It was, it was tricky and there was lots of things happening and going down and we found each other in our truth despite that. Because we were like, what the fuck is going on there is that. right now? 
That's what happened. We recognized. We bond like, over something that. Something was, yeah, awry, and then we bonded. And what the um, fuck is an organizing principle? It is, sometimes. and it was a really, it was a tense moment in an anti-racism training. And so we did find each other in this this mess, and we had different roles in the training. As Carrie was a facilitator, and I was a participant and then ended up facilitating this moment that was very tense that we needed to process because of how whiteness was showing up in the room. Um, and so somehow we connected there, right, through all of that and then built this relationship and now are doing work together. And um, part of how Carrie shows up in relationship is um, she's persistent and she's fierce and she loves me and she's not trying to save me and she does try to move out of the way so that I have space, right, to be and to breathe and to share my truth. And it's not just me. I've seen that time and time again. So that's what accountability looks like. And I think that's what relationship looks like across lines of difference. And showing up when it's messy, right? Like being in the mess and knowing it's going to continue to be messy because we're talking about racism um, and white supremacy most of the time when we work together with folks and with each other. And so just expecting that we're going to be sitting in a bunch of contradictions and that we can hold it. And our, we, I trust that our relationship can hold it. And I think that's kind of the muscle that needs to be built between people. And it ties into us remembering how precious we are. Well, and I think one of the miracles of relationship, and I, I feel this so um, authentically with you, is that um, one of the things I've noticed about how I show up um, in like allyship and friendship and relationship as a white person is that I completely deny my own well-being, right? And I, and and you have you have been like an advocate for my taking care of me, and uh, and and showing up as like my whole self and my powerful self and my true self, no matter what, right? Like you don't demand me to be smaller because we're in a in a relationship that respects equity. Um, and I think sometimes like we get that wrong as white folks, like we think we need to small down, um, but you actually need to like power up, like your personal power, like your true power, and you just need to adjust relative to in social and institutional power, like the illusion of power that we live in. Um, and I really learned that from you in the way in which you were like, don't do that. <laughs> like, no, we need you in your like greatest expression um, in this work. And, and when you're like that, you can be like, we can both mm -hmm. be like that and there's enough space for all of us to go around. Um, but I, miss, I used to misunderstand that because I used to think that all power was the same and I forgot that I have personal power that can't be given or taken away and that I actually have to own that for myself. And that's the thing that allows me to show up fully in relationship with you. And that's different from the way in which I, I navigate power in the system. Right, it's different in the way in which I might leverage, leverage privilege, you know what I mean, in order to actually make more room for other people and get out of the way of it. It's different from the way in which I might redistribute power. And I didn't understand that until I met you. I feel so privileged and so grateful that I've, I've gotten to be in relationship with you. Um, and it's funny, like, I, I feel vulnerable saying that because I question any way in which I benefit from this work, but I benefit. Like, I'm better because of you. 
Thank you, um, Carrie. And I, I feel like part of what allows me to be in relationship um, or to trust that I can be in relationship with some white folks, right? Not all white folks. Uh, is that I can, I understand what con how conditioning works. So like I understand, at least about whiteness, um, because I certainly have privileged identities as well, so I don't understand everything. But I do understand how conditioning works around whiteness. And um, I understand some about what you're internalizing from the culture. And I can um, see that and still be in relationship with you because I know you're also working on understanding and undoing the conditioning. That's why we can be in deep relationship and I can have compassion. I, I actually believe you deserve to um, be taken care of and be held as much as I deserve that. That's a belief I move with in the world. And again, not, not every person of color or black person needs to believe that because whiteness has like well, and the system is so set up to take care of me, right? right? So I have like a different like proximity to care. And our birthright is system. to be able to breathe and to feel joyful and to move freely. Like that's our birthright, both of us, except that the culture's been constructed in a way where I don't actually get to experience that most of the time because of systems, right? But I do experience it in interpersonal relationship with folks like Carrie or other people that I decide to work with across difference. It feels hard to experience joy given the horrors of this moment. Um, and yet, um, like I've laughed so hard with you. Like I've had such joy in working with you. Like it's hard work and, um, and it's also been beautiful and joyful. And, and I know we talk a lot about resilience and I'm, I think I'm still trying to like understand what that means. Um, like what that really means in an embodied way and how to be a commitment to that. But I believe that joy has something to do with it. Like to, to surrender to joy, to allow for joy, um, to allow for play um, and letting go and rest. And so I'm curious, like how do you define resilience? Like, what is that to you? And what is the role of resilience in doing this work? Where does joy play into all of that? So there's part of me that white supremacy will never get. And I remember that every time I show up in space and every time I sit in front of my altar and every time I move on my mat, like there's some part of me that's untouchable. White supremacy doesn't get it. And I understand that maybe that's my soul. I'm not sure, but I understand that that's true, which allows me to be resilient and to show up, even when I'm feeling the deepest despair about what is going on in the world, even when I'm feeling the most heartbroken. Like, white supremacy doesn't get all of me. Mm -hmm. It's like not allowed to do that. And so I think that's what allows me to be resilient um, and to show up and to be present in this work. And I also believe in our shared humanity and our collective humanity and our capacity to shift what is going on. And so I remember that, and that's part of what allows me to be resilient. And if, if I didn't laugh um, and didn't allow myself to feel joy. And drink wine. And drink lots of wine. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure where, where I would be. You won't dance, though. No. I'm not sure where I would be. Because um, if I thought about every racist act that I have experienced, every minute 
the burden of that would be too heavy for me to like continue on in this physical body. It would be too much. And I think that's true for a lot of folks who are marginalized by dominant culture. And so like I have to laugh and be silly and I'm not laughing about racism happening. We find other things to laugh about, but it's like in the midst of us understanding racism's happening, we're like still laughing about our relationship or being silly and I need that because it's medicine. And I need that to survive and to thrive. I need it too. Mm -hmm. While this podcast is coming to an end, our work in the world is just beginning. This week's call to action is to risk something to defend Black lives. Risk is different for all of us, depending on our social location and our proximity to power and privilege, but it means to put something of value on the line, whether that is our money, our reputation, our comfort, our convenience, even our bodies, so that we can collectively do what is needed to protect black lives and move towards liberation. Be sure to check out Michelle's book, Skill in Action, which you can buy on her website at michellecjohnson.com. And follow her, learn from her, take her trainings, and support her work at Skill in Action. Special thanks to DJ Drez for the amazing soundtrack. You can check out his music at djdrez.com. And to our executive producer who puts it all together and makes it sound great, Trevor Exter. And thank you for being here today. You can stay in the know and engaged by subscribing to our free weekly newsletter, Well Read, at citizenwell.org. Citizen Podcast is community-inspired and crowdsourced. That's how we keep it real. Join our community on Patreon for as little as $2 per month so that we can keep doing the work of curating content that matters for citizens who care. And don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. And share the love, y'all, by telling your friends to check us out. 